Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Nelson, also known as the Canadian Dividend Investor. He has previously been on the podcast, and I recommend checking out that episode in the archives. Today, we're going to be talking about the legendary Canadian investor, Peter Kundal. Peter was a value investor who achieved a 15% rate of return from 1974 through the end of his fund. This was a period of time when the stock market returned 9.6%, international stocks returned 7.7%. So needless to say, he smoked the market. He employed a deep value style of investing, and he emphasized low price to book stocks and net nets, even had net net on his license plate. He started his fund after reading about Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham in the book Super Money when he was on a flight in 1974. He started his fund with $160,000, and it went on to become one of the top performing funds of all time. He's a very unique character. He was a world traveler. He made it a point every year to visit the country with the worst performing stock market so he could analyze it for opportunities. He was very devoted to physical fitness and routinely ran marathons well into his 50s. He has a very complex personal life, which we'll get into. His philosophical thoughts about his life are very interesting and thought-provoking. He passed away in 2011 at the age of uh, 72 due to a neurological disease called Fragile X. Nelson and I both read Kundal's biography, Routines and Orgies by Christopher Rousseau Gill. The book is very unique because Kundal kept a journal where he held nothing back and talked about every aspect of his life, good, bad, ugly, and revealed what was going on. The provocative title is from an Aldous Huxley quote. The quote is, the commonest, one might call it, the natural rhythm of human life is routine punctuated by orgies. Routine supports men's weakness, makes the fatigue of thought unnecessary, and relieves them of the intolerable burden of responsibility. Orgies, whether sexual, religious, sporting, or political, provide that periodical excitement which all of us crave. It's worth noting that there's also a shorter book, which I've also read called There's Always Something to Do, with more of a focus on his investment career, while this book was much longer and focused on all aspects of his life. So Nelson, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And I'm looking forward to talking about this book, because like you said in your intro, he is a interesting, unique guy. You know, the investing stuff is interesting, but the personal life stuff is even more interesting. And I think with, you know, whether it's Kundo or Buffett or whatever, it's like, it's almost, you need this weird personal life in order to succeed in the markets. Like it's just, all these guys seem to have these just really weird kind of setups. And it's super interesting to read about them. And it's kind of, you know, putting the dots together to say, okay, like, how did this translate into him being a better investor is all very, very interesting. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, the book reminded me a lot of The Snowball, which is about Warren Buffett's life. And Warren Buffett has kind of disavowed that book. And I think it's because it gets way too 
it gets way too ugly at times, like in getting into his personal life. And this book is pretty similar because it's it's based on his journals and it really just gives you the entire picture of, of what was going on. So what were your main takeaways from the book? Yeah, well, I think like, you know, just talking about the snowball for a minute, 100% that that's what happened was that, uh, you know, Al Schroeder uh, wrote this book and, you know, Buffett kind of put it all out there. And then she put all this stuff into the book knowing that, you know, people would be interested in it. And, and he was kind of like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't like this. I don't like how yeah. I'm being perceived. <laughs> he, you know, and at that point, even back then, Buffett was a god to so many people. And she wrote this very real kind of book where, where Kundal was, was a little bit uh, different where, you know, at the end of the uh, the book, the author talks about writing the book and talks about like, you know, talking to Peter and, and, you know, all these stories and, and Peter very much was just like, you know, he put it all in. It it didn't sound to me like he had any objections with, with including uh, anything. And that's the kind of the refreshing part about this is, is that he was, he was who he was and there was no apologizing for it. And mm. especially as he got older, he realized it's like, okay, this is who I am. And there were certain people that came into his life who didn't like it. And he basically just kind of dumped them. And he was like, look, uh, this is who I am. And, and that's it. So that for me was kind of the, the biggest sort of takeaway was, was that he was unique and he didn't apologize for it. And that made him who he was and, and uh, good for him for not being afraid to live his own life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He definitely charted his own path and did his own thing. And he wasn't held back by any kind of convention or what anybody expected of him. And he, uh, yeah, he lived life on his own terms. Yeah. So I thought maybe we could start talking about the investment stuff. So I thought that this quote kind of summed up his approach. So he said, the essential concept is to buy undervalued, unrecognized, neglected, out of fashion, or misunderstood situations where inherent value, a margin of safety, and the possibility of a sharply changing conditions can create new and favorable investment opportunities. So what do you think about that approach? Well, I mean, it's one thing, I think everyone not quite, but most investors would say that their approach is very kind of similar to something like that, where it's like, you know, I want out of favor, I want disliked, I want, you know, stuff the market hates. And then when the time actually comes to buy those stocks, I think it's much, much more difficult for a lot of people to pull the trigger because, you know, especially today, we've got Twitter, we've got uh, CNBC, you know, like there's all these things that really are pushing against you when it's time to be contrarian. It's time to buy the things that uh, people dislike. But, you know, not only did, uh, did Kundal do that, but it was very much like, you know, he, he started looking in North American markets. And then when there wasn't enough, uh, you know, deep value in those markets, that's when he really started looking around the world for things to uh, invest in. And his thing was like, look, I want this margin of safety. I want this balance sheet uh, safe, you know, like he'd be, he wanted high quality balance sheets. He didn't care so much about earnings. It was very much like, okay, if something really bad happens, can this company survive? And he very much kind of took that attitude and then went around the world to find stocks that sort of fit it rather than say, okay, I can't find any stocks that fit my philosophy. So I'm going to change my philosophy. So 
even if he was, uh, you know, he couldn't find anything, he would sit in 20, 30, 40% cash until he started to find things. He would short uh, things that he thought was overvalued. So it was a very disciplined approach. And that's probably a big part of the reason why he was so successful for so long. Yeah, he made some incredible calls. So going into the 1987 crash, he was 40% cash. He also shorted the Japanese bubble at the peak. And then he also called the technology bubble in the late 90s. So he has, it's not like he was just a stop clock that was always, you know, reflexively contrarian, but he really made some outstanding calls at uh, in certain markets. Yeah. One more that you didn't mention was in 2005, 2006, he called the the top of the mortgage market mm-hmm. and he sent a memo to uh, everyone else in Kundal in, in his company. It was basically like, this is bad. We need to short it. And at that point, it had been acquired by McKenzie, one of the big mutual fund companies here in Canada. And they went to McKenzie and they said, hey, we need to buy these collateralized debt obligations. We need to short this market. Like Prem Watts is doing it. He was tight with uh, Prem Watts from uh, Fairfax. And McKenzie just kind of said, hey, we, we don't know how to, how to do this. We're not equipped to do this. Basically like, Peter, this isn't what proper funds do. Stop it. And so he went and bought more Fairfax, knowing that Fairfax was shorting the market as sort of like a hedge. And that worked out for him, of course, but he would have been one of those investors that made you know, pockets of money by shorting the housing market if McKenzie would have let him. Yeah, absolutely. So the McKenzie thing is interesting. So ultimately, I think around 2000 or at some point in the late 90s, he sold the fund to McKenzie and then retained a small piece of it. But I, I maybe you disagree. We talk about it, but I got the impression that he regretted that a little bit, giving up control of the fund. What did you get from that? I would, I would agree with that. You know, the book outlines kind of the reasons why he did it. Uh, one was that the fund was just terribly marketed, because mm-hmm. for whatever reason, Peter just couldn't uh, like wrap his head around spending the money and hiring the people and and everything that he needed to market the fund. It was very much like hey, my returns are there. Why don't people buy this thing? Mm-hmm. And the fun world doesn't quite work that way. And so there's that. There were certain minority partners, I think, that wanted to get out as well. And ultimately, I think it was, uh, I think part of it too was that he became a very wealthy uh, man by by cashing out. And, you know, at that point, he's in his, what, he's, he's in his 50s. I think that for for a lot of people at that point, it's hard to, kind of, you know, an offer comes along and it's like, hey, this is a life-changing amount of money. Like, this is a massive amount of money. And, you know, at that point, he was very healthy, very into fitness. He probably thought that, hey, if I get this money and I invest it personally, I can do very well and I can, uh, you know, end up incredibly wealthy. So I think that kind of thought process had, had something to do with it. But ultimately, like you said, I think he regretted it. I agree with that assessment. He didn't have the freedom that he that he had before. And uh, he had the kind of the, these people at McKenzie who would, you know, not just the mortgage bonds, but uh, other things. So they would kind of just say, Peter, like, you know, there's some pushback on his lifestyle at that point, which was largely paid for by, by his investors, essentially. So it's complicated. But at the end of the day, I think that he probably did regret it a little bit. 
Yeah, and I, I think another reason he did it was because he seemed to really enjoy the actual investment process and researching investment and didn't enjoy kind of the business of, of running a fund. So I think that was that was another big reason he did it. That, that's exactly it. And, you know, one of the things that just to kind of pivot to, you know, you have a Substack, I have a Substack, where one of the things I talk to people about where it's like, look, you might be a really good investor, but the business of running a newsletter or the business of running a, a mutual fund is more than just being a good investor. Yeah, that's that's 100% true. They're very different things. With Substack in particular, there's a few buckets. There's the writing, there's the business, like marketing aspect of it, and then there's the actual research. And those three things are very different skills, I think. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's hard for a lot of, you know, people who have the investing skill and the research skill, it's hard for them to wrap their head around that marketing is every bit as important, if not even more important than the investing skill itself. Yeah, I guess their attitude is kind of like the return should speak for themselves, but it's not really how things play out in reality. And that was very much Peter's attitude too, was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, hey, I've been an excellent investor for, you know, like by the time McKenzie bought him out, it was, it was probably at least 20 years and his track record was excellent, you know, and his attitude was uh, like, hey, how come, and you he would have these like, like these huge uh, swings and kind of assets under management. Uh, John Templeton was a big investor at one point and Peter had this like great year. And then John just took all of his money out. <laughs> Peter's like, like, like you felt betrayed. He's like, you know, what the hell? Like I, I'm doing well for you. And you take your money out. Who knows what, what he wanted to do with the money? Like, uh, but that was tough for Peter to kind of deal with. And, and I think really tough for the people who work for Peter, where it's like, Peter, we can make this thing so much bigger. if You just marketed it. And if you just like did all these things and he never really cared because he had enough money to, uh, do sort of whatever he wants. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So we touched a little bit about his lifestyle. So Kumble was definitely the anti-Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett is known for kind of hanging out at his house in Omaha. Kumble was like a jet setter, you know, wore nice suits. He's, you know, in all the nicest hotels around the world. He's, you know, he's really kind of like living large. I thought that was a funny contrast between the two of them. For sure. And, you know, as a heads up for anyone who reads this book, and it's worth it, just to, like, you know, we're, we're getting to the part where I'm going to be a little bit more sort of negative about him because I think that a lot of this, it's fascinating reading and all that. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I don't think that going to Tokyo and staying in the Four Seasons and eating these opulent meals that he lists in detail in the book. I don't think that that at the end of the day added to his returns very much at all. I think it was like a, Hey, I like traveling. I'm investing in these stocks anyway. So I'm going to go to Japan and, you know, air quote, check things out. When in reality, (laughs) he wanted to go and like travel and see it and, and et cetera. And he did it on the, on the funds dime. And that ultimately uh, came out of his investors' pockets. Yeah, but at the same time, his investors were earning gigantic returns. Like I cited the 15%, but while he was directly in charge of things, 
I think his investors were earning 22% compounded. So it was, it was an excellent result. I, I don't want to take anything away from that, but you know, if he's spending 2% of, uh, you know, fund assets every year on that, it could have been 24% and that would have just been even, even better. Again, the results are there and it doesn't take away from the fact that he, he had these results. I just think that it's, you know, one of the reasons why investors have moved away from these actively managed funds mm-hmm. is because of situations like Kundal's, where it's like, hey, you didn't need to do that to generate returns. You did, and kudos to you, and you made a lot of people rich, but you didn't have to do it. Yeah, well, most active and actively managed funds from back in the day were living like that, and then they weren't delivering the return. So I, I don't know. <laughs> For sure. And uh, in Canada, especially, our our fund fees, it really was only like after 2009 that our fund fees really started to come down. You know, I set, my, my parents had a bunch of funds in the early 2000s. And one of the very first things I did was uh, set them up into lower kind of cost alternatives. And I remember back then they were paying like, you know, 2.75, 3, 3.25% per year on wow. these funds. And <laughs> It was it was huge, and, and like they're they're losing to the market by that much. And in the late '90s, of course, nobody cared because it was like the markets were going up so fast. And then once things started going down, it was like this is way too much. And like that's what it was like in Canada back then. It was like you know the Americans listen. You think you had a bad in Canada? We were just just raked over the coals with these just just terrible terrible fees. So the fact that Peter could outperform while investors pay these uh, these high fees uh, is just all the more impressive, really. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, in the US, by the early 90s, Vanguard was already, you know, they already had their total market fund. It was, it was very cheap by that point. I want to say it was less than, probably much less than 25 bips maybe back then. So I, I think we were well on the road. And when the Vanguard fund first came out, I think the fee was like 1%. And then you're talking about like 3% fees. Those are kind of like in the US, the relics of the 70s and the 80s. By the Mm -hmm. 90s, they had started to disappear. One more thing about Canada was that uh, in the early 2000s, there was really only one ETF and it was the TSX 60 ETF. It charged half a percent or three quarters of a percent or or something like quite high compared to what it charges today. But it was the only one of any kind of like size. The TSX Composite uh, one, which was the benchmark index for Canada. I think that ETF only came along like 2006 or 2007. The iShares version, that is. Like Vanguard came into Canada in about 2012 or 2013. So it just goes to show how in 20 years, from kind of like the end of Peter's career till till now, just how much things have changed. And now, of course, you can get your, you know, your TSX 60 or your TSX Composite or even like these TXX dividend ETFs. Like there's a million of them just like there are in the US. And, you know, your your fees start at kind of that 0.05% and sort of go up from there. So they've come a long way in 20 years. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. I didn't realize, I didn't realize that was the situation in Canada. That's pretty fascinating. So talking about kind of how Kundal's philosophy could be applied today. This was his, I wanted to read his screen um, and then we could talk about it. So the price must be less than book value, preferably less than networking capital. 
The price must be less than one half of its former high and preferably near an all-time low. The PE must be less than 10. Over the last five years, the company was profitable each year and increased its earnings over a five-year period. The company must pay dividends and they must have low levels of long-term debt. In the modern markets, I don't think this exists. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think exactly. about this? <laughs> I think if you ran that screen in Canada and the United States, you just like, you know, your laptop would explode every time you ran the screen because we're just like, no, there's nothing. Go away. And so so very much is, is a is kind of a relic of a of a former time. Now, saying that, I think in like even like the 1970s and the 1980s, Kundal would have largely like kind of said the same thing when it came to Canada and the United States. He probably had some, uh, but by that point, he was looking around the world for investment ideas. And that's exactly what you'd have to do with a, uh, with a strategy like this. And I think if you go into, you know, like, I don't know, markets like Turkey and, you know, like the, these Colombia and these, these kind of areas with sort of these, these kind of big problems, you can find stocks that are that cheap. But then that kind of opens up a whole new can of worms where it's like, well, do you really want to be investing in a, you know, Turkey has whatever 80% inflation? I don't know. Like, I don't know anything about Turkey. So don't, uh, you know, quote me on these numbers. But it's kind of like all you really need to know is that Turkey is a scary market and that's a difficult place to invest in. And then, you know, like to do this Peter Kundal strategy, that's exactly where you have to go. Or you'd have to go into places like Poland or South Korea or Japan. We should talk more about Japan in a minute because it's fascinating. But like these are markets where like holding equities is, it's not like in, in North America where it's like, you know, everyone who wants to retire holds equities in some form, whether it's through a mutual fund or directly through an ETF or, or whatever. And in Asia, in, you know, Eastern Europe and all these places, like they're not an equity holding culture. Like if they want to save, they'll, they'll buy real estate, they'll buy gold, they'll buy, you know, stuff like that versus buying equities because they just don't really trust equities and it's just not the same culture. And so, you know, as a, as a deep value investor, you go, have to go into these markets and it all combines to make it sort of this, this kind of scary thing that's, that's difficult to pull off. And that's the attraction, of course, is that if you get these markets right, if you guess right, the returns are unbelievably good. It's just, you know, the first part of that sentence, if you guess them right, that's the hard part. Yeah. And the trade-off you're making, like you make the point about how the country might be corrupt, there might be issues. You know, I, th I can think of a recent example of that with um, Russian stocks. So Exactly. I remember yeah. being told, oh, there's all these incredible bargains in Russia. You can get like a 10% dividend yield. And now it's effectively zeros because no one can get their capital out of there. Yeah. So you're just introducing, I think, a new kind of risk into the process when you're going into these kind of emerging dicey markets. Yeah. And, and Kundal did go into Russia temporarily in the, the late 90s. There was one stock he bought. I can't remember what it was. Made a bunch of money on it and then just left. And then Putin came in and then he just avoided the whole thing uh, completely. And so that is one reason why, you know, you would want to travel these markets because you do want to see what's going on on the street. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's like, like, you know, a guy like you or a guy like me, we show up in, I don't know, like Turkey or Russia or wherever. It's like, hello, I'd like to see your most important person, please. And they're like, go away. Like, like, so it's, it's, 
it's very difficult for someone who isn't Peter Kundal to go into a place like Turkey, you know, run around the city. Cause that's always what he would like to do is uh, run around and kind of see what was going on, mm-hmm. you know, on the ground level and get any sort of accurate information. Like it's just impossible. Uh, it's it's not going to work for guys like us. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Kundal could get meetings with top companies in those countries and and kind of get an idea. And yeah, that was cool how he would run around a major city and try to get a sense of the culture and everything. I thought that was really neat. For sure. And I do, you know, I'm not nearly as fit as what Peter Kundal was, but I certainly like to go into cities and walk around and and kind of view them from that perspective. It's one of my favorite things to do when I go to a new place is just sort of walk around and see, you know, where things are, what's going on. And, and he's right. You can, you can see a lot from that, that perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And as for the international investing, I mean, I think, I think it's possible maybe to find bargains if you widen your net and are willing to go to maybe developed markets. Personally, I would want to avoid an emerging market situation. But I think if you're sticking to a place like South Korea, Japan, Europe, Taiwan, you, you know, there's some geopolitical risk there. But I think if you can avoid basically like high corruption countries, I think exactly. it might be a little yeah. bit better. That's a great point. And and that's it. It's it's you need to be able to assume the financials are honest. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I look at if I were to look at a Russian stock. You know, like like these just these places where it's like I don't think that you know if the leader is is corrupt, then the elite would also be corrupt because of course, like how do you become the elite in a situation in a in a society like that, in a situation like that is you make sure that you don't uh, offend the leader, and mm-hmm. so that makes it extremely difficult for that. And so exactly what you're saying, it's developed markets only. And at least then you have a pretty good idea that the financials are honest and and, uh, it's being ran by people who want to get rich honestly rather than, you know, corruptly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I thought this was an interesting quote that he had on computers. So he wrote, computers actually don't do much to make things quicker for investors to react to information. The problem is that having the information in its raw state on a second-by-second basis is not at all the same thing as interpreting and understanding its implications. And this applies in rising markets as well as falling ones. Spur-of-the-moment reactions to partially digested information are more often than not disastrous. So what do you think about that? That is such a fantastic quote. And I, I agree with it so, so much. Twitter, I've talked about this. So for the people who just kind of are just familiar with me, I, I struggle a little bit with Twitter. I'm on Twitter and et cetera. But I think that Twitter is, or X as it's called now, I'll never call it X. It's Twitter to me. Same. <laughs> it's good, good. It's, I, I think it's a net negative at the end of the day for a lot of people because exactly what 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 Kundal said there, where it's like, like all this information comes at you from every direction. And you know, when, when your stocks are getting hit, Twitter thinks that it's just the end of the world and everyone just overreacts to these short-term moves. And you see it on, on days when, when, you know, the market's red. It's like Fintwit. It's just so negative. And yeah. it's just, it, it's such an overreaction. And I think that for the regular investor, 
minimizing your exposure to things like Twitter and CNBC and the kinds of things that are going to get you excited and make you tempted to sell at the lows is is a very bad thing and you should avoid it as much as possible. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think a Bloomberg terminal, CNBC on in the background, FinTwit, I, I think these things are mostly net negatives for an investment process. Like, I think it's probably better to just turn it off and go read a 10K. <laughs> for, for sure. And, and you know, people are on there because there are a lot of smart people on uh, on FinTwit. And, and, and you get this, this ability to kind of like interact with people who are smarter than you. And that part of it is, is, is very valuable, but doesn't mm-hmm. outweigh the part that's, that's very negative. And that's where I have my doubts. And I'm just not sure that for a lot of people, it's the case, especially people who are more inclined to get a little bit excited and make changes based on, you know, what they feel in their spleen or something. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you look at a long-term chart of stocks and you think about all of the little events that happen every day and the financial community, if you're really like in that world, is almost totally devoted to all of those little things and they tend to blow small events out out of proportion. Exactly. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, even something like the 1987 crash is a pretty minor event (laughs) at the time. Well, and of of course, people talk about the 1987 crash or, oh my God, the 1987 crash, but I think it was like by the end of the year, the market was up, you know, like, like it was, it was back to the point where it crashed yeah. from. And, and, and I might be wrong on that. So, you know, no, but you, it's like, you're so right. The point is, yeah, the point is the market just recovered very, very quickly after that crash. Everyone talks about the crash. Hardly anyone talks about the recovery. Right. Yeah. If you, if you were to fall asleep on January 1st, 1987, and then uh, wake up December 31st, 1987, you were basically flat for the year. And you're like, oh, I guess nothing happened this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, too, one more thing I was just going to add is that pessimism sounds much smarter than optimism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got these people on there and it's like, oh, you know, so-and-so, this short-term thing, here's how it's going to be this like big long-term thing. And for the most part, predictions like that just sort of pass without happening. And but the problem is at the time, it's like, hey, this makes sense. If this happens and this happens and this happens and then, oh, no, where it's like, yeah, but the first thing happened, but that doesn't mean the second thing's going to happen. And that doesn't mean the third thing's going to happen. Like, and it's, it's very hard to, you know, optimism is, hey, this is going to be all right, which doesn't sound very smart at all. In fact, it sounds pretty stupid versus, hey, this thing's going to happen, which is going to lead to this thing, et cetera. And that is, that's hard to kind of wrap your head around when pessimism sounds so much smarter than optimism. Yeah. So speaking of smart people in investing, he had this quote, which I really like, just as many smart people fail in the investment business as stupid ones, intellectually active people are particularly attracted to elegant concepts, which can have the effect of distracting them from the simpler, more fundamental truths. That's such another great quote. I love it. I just, at the end of the day, you're like keeping these things, th- this thing simple, I think is, is almost like a superpower where it's, it's so hard to, to just take a simple investment. Like that Charlie Munger said, uh, take a simple concept and take it seriously. That is so hard for, for super, super smart people to do. 
they they get in their own way a lot. And, you know, I know from my history as, you know, kind of like you, I started out as a deep value guy. And then I realized that that it wasn't working for me. And, you know, it's just that part of, uh, you know, that part of the process, it just, I couldn't click from kind of taking these, these undervalued stocks. So Kundal had great success with the strategy and I didn't. And, you know, I don't know if like I was just trying to be too smart with it or whatever, but the point is, is, is that part of the, the investing world is, is filled with incredibly smart people who some of them get it and some of them do very well. And then a whole bunch of them kind of get in their own way and don't do as well. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think our issues with deep value and his success with it is kind of like a reflection of the market environments. So like I mm-hmm. talked about that screen earlier, which doesn't really exist in, you know, in North America at least. In the 70s, it was a different story. So in the 70s, you could find companies like like if I could find companies like this, I'd buy them all day long where they're like less than book value and they have a P of 10 and they have an earnings record going back five years and they pay a dividend. That kind of thing just doesn't exist anymore. But in the 70s, it did. Greenblatt actually had an interesting study that he did in the 1970s where he did a net magic formula where basically it was like stocks below working capital that also had a low PE. And that strategy did like, you know, 40% or 30% or something ridiculous back in the 70s. But you can't buy a diversified portfolio of companies like that right now. But back then you could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, 100%. And of course, everything now is intangible assets versus tangible assets. And tangible assets are a lot easier to value than than intangible assets. And it's, it's really interesting to kind of think about what a guy like Peter Kundal would do in a market uh, today where it's like, you know, would he be buying the, you know, like the, the Microsofts and the Amazons and the like, no, because he just, I don't think he'd be able to wrap his head around the value of the intangible assets. He was just not that kind of investor, not that kind of analyst. And, you know, so he would be the guy. I mean, I, I don't think he'd be in places like Turkey and stuff right now. I think he'd be in Europe. Europe is is very cheap and there's a lot of kind of just values that I see in Europe and, and I don't really, you know, go outside of Canada, but there are some some really good kind of values in in in, in Europe and uh, but it I, I still think it would be hard for a guy like Kundal to uh, kind of invest in, in today's market. Yeah, and I'm not sure what caused that. Like, if you were talking to kind of like the Austrian kind of crowd, they'd probably say, "Well, the Fed has been inflating bubbles for 40 years, and and none of it is real, and we're this is just a product of a big bubble that's eventually going to crash." The other point of view would be, "Well, now anybody can sit down in front of a computer and run a screen that you know looks for outstanding value, and they've all been picked over, and whatever's left is kind of impaired." Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that the, the big difference between now and the 1970s is there is a small army of people who are using computers and, you know, using these tools we have available these days that, that we didn't have available in the, in the 1970s to find undervalued stocks. And, you know, they can buy these stocks anywhere in the world. Basically, there's a few kind of markets that are accessible to 
you know, say North American retail traders. But ultimately, there's a lot more people searching for kind of the same amount of opportunities as, you know, guys like Kundal and Buffett and, and uh, Walter Schloss and all these like kind of deep value guys from back in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, we're, we're looking for. And that makes it a fundamentally different game now than what it was back then. Yeah, absolutely. I remember reading about Warren Buffett buying a company, an insurance company, like basically like a stable insurance company with no problems. And he was able to get it at a one PE. Like I, that yeah. doesn't exist anywhere in the US right now. <laughs> no, no. And, and, you know, it's like there are enough people looking for these opportunities that it might exist in Poland or Turkey or South Korea or Japan mm-hmm. or wherever. But there's enough people looking for this opportunity that's not going to exist very long because there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to see it, see the opportunity, put their money in, and next thing you know, it's going to be uh, like 5 PE or whatever. And two, I think a big part of that kind of culture is these guys are on Twitter. They're very active on Twitter. And there's a big community of, of kind of deep value on Twitter. And they very much kind of feed off each other. One person finds something that's interesting. He tells his friends or tells his friends or tell his friends. And next thing you know, it's like the opportunity is gone because all these like kind of guys in, in, you know, Chicago or wherever have snatched up essentially. Yeah, that's, that's true. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes they, they, usually they don't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Usually when you see like everybody on deep value Twitter getting, talking about some ticker, it's probably a bad idea, whatever it (laughs) is. So I, I follow a lot of deep value uh, Twitter because uh, sometimes they do stumble upon things that are interesting. Yeah. And kind of what I found is that some of it is just like, it, it's you got to really squint hard to find the value in it. And I just, I, I think I've just changed my thinking and I don't really see it. And so it's hard for me to kind of like wrap my head around it. So I'm usually... Uh, just it's for entertainment purposes only, but they do enjoy the entertainment. It's fun. Yeah. And it's, and it's the same on compounder Twitter, you know, they'll all get down on some compounder and they're like, this is a secular growth stock and it deserves to trade at a 60 P and then they all lose their minds when it goes down to something normal. <laughs> yeah. It, like dollar general is a great, great example right now. Where it's like, you know, at 220 bucks or whatever, it's like, hey, well, this, this stock is great. Dollar stores are such a great business. This is going to grow, you know, like five to ten percent forever. Blah blah blah. And then, you know, what's a falls fifty percent? It's like you should be salivating. Like, what's what's wrong here? No, no, it's actually trash. <laughs> yeah. Like, six months ago, you loved it. You know, and not like you know <laughs> you specifically, but like no, it's, sometimes and, it's them specifically. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and for me, it's like like do you not like buying things that are low? You know, like be just. With the Buffett quote about a under sex man and harem, like that should be you, you know, buy that thing. Like, like if you're that serious about loving it, buy it. But no, because like we talked about that, uh, that short term thinking prevails, and you know, it's like, well, it's down. It, there must be something wrong with it. And well, yeah, there's something wrong with it. The answer is, is or the, the the hard question is, is there something temporarily wrong with it, or is it broken forever? And Generally, companies that have done well for a number of years are not broken forever. 
Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to kind of Peter Kundal's life. So what would you say are some of the, uh, you know, away from the business and the stocks and everything, what would you say are some of the big takeaways from his life? Well, one is the the love of travel. So I, Peter and I are, are, are kind of on the same page when it comes to to travel. I love to travel, but it's, you know, you mentioned the five-star hotels, the fancy meals, you know, the meeting with the important people and, you know, like the, the average person cannot, of course, sustain that. I cannot sustain that. But I think the, the sort of the, the, the concept of traveling and visiting a place to kind of really understand what's going on there is, is sound. I think it's a great idea for anyone listening, like, you know, for like my background, of course, is that I, I worked and then I became financially independent and I stopped working. And part of the reason why I stopped working is so I'd have time to travel. So I, I certainly understand what Kundal was was uh, thinking there. And I think it's extremely, extremely valuable. So that was interesting. The other thing that was really, really interesting was his views on monogamy. And essentially, we'll talk more about this, obviously, but uh, you know, essentially his views were he was married for a very long time, but he did not let that stop him from having a girlfriend in kind of every city that he would... Uh, visit and he he basically just he was not faithful to his wife at all but she chose to ignore it for kind of various uh, reasons so that i thought was extremely interesting and a part of kundal's kind of life philosophy that i will not be replicating in case my wife is listening <laughs> yeah did she not know about it? Like I couldn't figure it out in the book. Were they in an open relationship and he was doing, or was he doing this all behind her back? Like what was, what was going there on? Was a, there was a, a little passage in the book that I thought was telling where I can't remember. It was his, I think it was his 50th birthday party. And he, he has this party in New York city. I think it was, and I, I might be getting the details slightly wrong, but the the story is that, he goes to this birthday party and whoever set up the birthday party for him had this great idea to put like two of his mistresses basically right beside him on this, <laughs> like the main stage and then put his wife back at table like 19. Oh, and yeah. she was mad and rightfully so, because it was like, you know, and what, what I got from that story was that like, Peter, it's okay if you kind of do this, but don't do it like that. Like, you know, keep it on the down low and, and it's fine. So I think that she, you know, if she didn't like explicitly know about it, there's sort of like a kind of, you know, she should have known about it if she didn't. But yeah, he, Peter was a bit of a man for her to put it, uh, put it lightly. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it seems to me like I don't understand why he got married. Like, if you want to live that lifestyle, just don't get married. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and two, like, he was he was traveling all the time. Like, like in the book, it talks about, you know, he's like, he'd go home and spend, like, a week with his wife and then kind of, like, start to get antsy again and, like, have to go. And, you know, a lot of times he would spend time with her. He would just, like, bring her to wherever he was uh, vacationing. And, of course, she's a big uh, fitness buff like, like he was. It was, like, kind of a big thing they had in common. And so they would go on like bike trips or, or whatever, and kind of do that uh, together. But it was very much like, you know, she, she was his wife, 
and he he writes in the journals how much how much he loved her and when she passed away she passed away before him they both passed away quite young actually which of course is, is tragic but uh, you know really really affected him but from the outsider looking in she would just kind of look like another one of his girlfriends where he'd just like fly her into somewhere for a couple weeks see her and then kind of send her back home or you know pop into her house wherever it was and spend the week there and then just leave again so the emotional attachment might have been more than than uh, you know with kind of any other woman but uh, he kind of treated her the same in a lot of ways by just popping in and popping out yeah he he very much enjoyed being a bachelor and i think he felt being married held him back in some way like there was a section I outlined here. This is by the author, but he said, Peter's latent yearning for the complete independence of his old bachelor life could still engender burst of impatience and frustration. So it's almost like he wasn't really into getting married in the first place, but he must have he must have loved his wife, but sounds like he really, really disliked the idea of being married. Yeah, and and one of the things it talks about in the book, and again, like like the the author, of course, you know, this is sort of a one of the other. I'm not going to call it things I have against the book or anything, but it just it's interesting where the author is a longtime associate of, of Kundal's, and so it's like, okay, are you really getting kind of the the you know sort of the the, the good and the bad? And he touches on the bad, but I I don't know if we're getting kind of the whole picture of the of the bad, but but it's very much where. He would, you know, show up, see his wife, and by the end of the week, by the end of two weeks, you could tell that he was just really getting annoyed with her, and he would kind of have to go. And it's like, okay, well, and part of that was, was like you said, he just wanted to be a bachelor, wanted to be free, and and uh, etc. But uh, it's it's very much the, you know, he I think he wanted to be married and get kind of the good parts about being married, that emotional support not have to deal with sort of like some of the negative stuff of, you know, living with someone every day and, and kind of having to, you know, go through their ups and downs with them. I think he just wanted to like the good parts about being married, not any of the, uh, any of the harder parts. Yeah, absolutely. I really admired his physical fitness. So I thought that was really amazing. Like he ran a marathon every year. He kept his body fat at less than 10%. And then on top of all that, he's out, you know, climbing mountains and he's, he's routinely running like, you know, like a 10 mile run was nothing to him. Mm -hmm. I was, I was really impressed with his, with, with his physical abilities. And one of the points he makes in the book was he talks about how that feeds into your mental health. And I think that's, that's a good takeaway. It's like you said, a lot of us think of our minds and our bodies as almost like separate things, but they're very much interrelated. Yeah, his physical fitness was just was super, super impressive. There's one point in the book where it talks about how he ran a half marathon. And this is right before he starts getting sick. So he's like in his early 60s. And he had his like best time. He ran a half marathon in like a, an hour 40 or something. In his early 60s. Like it's just remarkable how fit he was. And, you know, he really, really talks about uh, like how the two were connected, like you said. And how being physically fit really helped him in terms of like, you know, having the ability to concentrate, having the ability to work long hours because he could physically handle so much that, that it was just the mental part, uh, you know, that they, they kind of really fed into each other. 
So that was very, very interesting. And, you know, we talked about kind of Peter would show up and, and run around these, uh, these cities too, where it's like, like just, he had the fitness to, to do that. And, and you know, running around was, was extremely valuable for him. So it all really just kind of, you know, connected to kind of make the package that was, uh, that was him. And, uh, the results kind of speak for themselves, just how, how well he, he put it all together. So yeah, remarkable on the fitness side, really, really remarkable. Yeah. And I, I also admired his, his approach to just being independent. Like it probably would have been easier for him to find an investment job somewhere, but he went out and took the risk and started this fund with um, 160 grand of his own money. And I thought that was that was also super impressive. Yeah, he is definitely the kind of guy who who just, hey, Peter wanted to do things his way, and that, that was it. He found a way to to do it rather than kind of giving up and, uh, you know, going and getting a job somewhere because it is, his analytical skills were were top-notch. Like, you know, he, he called a lot of things. He, he figured out kind of the system, and he used it, and... And it just like the fact that he was able to sort of leverage that into the life he wanted is, is very inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. And I was also impressed with his, the way he handled the end of his life. He was in very horrible physical condition at the end as a result of, of this disease. My understanding is it's very similar to Parkinson's disease, but it's less treatable. And he went through a, a kind of a long and painful decline in his health. And I was just super impressed that he never like gave up. Like he kept traveling, he kept doing all this stuff. He kept staying engaged in the markets. I thought that was really amazing and inspiring. Yeah. And so he, he, before he got sick, his, his wife got sick and, and it was very much like, like the way that he kind of, you know, he of course mourned and everything, but it was very much like, you know, life is a gift and you need to take advantage of this gift by living life to the to the fullest. And so his his wife passed away, and you know a lot of people whose whose wives pass away, it's very very difficult for them, and they sort of kind of go into a shell for a little while, and and that's how they mourn. And Peter was you know so he did the kind of the opposite of that, where he mourned, and then he was kind of like, okay, I'm out, I'm doing stuff again. And that of course just lasted for a few years, and then of course then he gets sick, and but very similar when he got sick, you know, he kind of, he, it was tough for him for a little while. And then, you know, his body started to shut down and he had to use a wheelchair and he resisted, 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 resisted until finally it was like, Hey, you kind of have to now, Peter. And mm-hmm. he just kind of went with it. He's like, all right, Hey, this is great. I'm going to go to the theater again. I'm going to go, you know, do all the visit people, do all the things. And that was it. He he was sick and he was declining, but he he very much kept himself busy and he wasn't going to use that as an excuse to not live his his life. And uh, you know, like right till the end, you know, he very shortly before he passed away, it's like, hey, let's go to Egypt. And yeah. So they get the plane and you know they they get him a, a nice hotel suite that you know you can wheel the wheelchair up and and uh, you know he's like he's very very sick and hey let's go to Egypt one last time. Mm-hmm. And that's a great, uh, that's what he wanted to do. And he did it right up to the end. And uh, that's a great attitude. Yeah, he was remarkably 
resilient in the face of adversity. Like even when he was younger, like he had that mentor, Frank Treble, who turned out to be kind of a fraud and he felt like his professional life was over and, and he bounced right back from that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. And that was part of the, the thing that uh, kind of made him go out on his own was the fact that he had this mentor, this person he trusted. And, you know, then the mentor um, is under investigation for kind of, kind of some shady practices. And the mentor goes to Peter and he's like, hey, you remember when I didn't do this, right? And Peter's like, no, what are you talking about? And it's like, oh, you want me to lie for you. I'm not doing that. And not only am I not doing that, but hey, it's time for me to go. And you know, it takes takes a certain amount of guts to uh, to you know, it's like that guy was his mentor. He looked up to him, and it's like, yeah, I'm not going to uh, take any risks by by helping you. You know, you're on your own. You know, so that's exactly the right thing to do. And it takes a certain amount of uh, you know, kind of intestinal fortitude to to do it. So good for him. Yeah, totally. So. You know, before we wrap up here, what would you say are is the main lesson you took away from this book? I think that independent thinking is is probably the the uh, the main lesson. And you know, we talked about Peter's travel, we talked about Peter's love life, we talked about his investments. Ultimately, at the end of the day, he very smart man. He thought about okay, this is what's going to work for me. This is what I want. And he very much just sort of like designed his life so he could have what he he wants. And, you know, it was difficult and he struggled at times. There's a point where he struggled with depression. And, but ultimately, he it was a life, a life well lived because it was his life and it's the life that he wanted. So that's probably for me the biggest takeaway. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think he was he was a very independent spirit who lived life on his own terms. And I, I think that's a great takeaway from from his life story. So, you know, before we wrap up, are there is there anything you maybe wanted to add for the audience about some work you've been doing lately if they wanted to reach out to you or read your stuff? Of course, my Substack is uh, uh, Canadian Dividend Investing. So just go to CanadianDividendInvesting.com. You'll you'll find it. I do a weekly post for kind of uh, sort of everyone that kind of covers more big picture investing stuff. And then twice a week, I do a post, two, two posts for paid subscribers and they're on specific Canadian dividend uh, stocks. So typically what I'm trying to do is sort of uh, find kind of under the radar, under discovered uh, stocks. They're not, it's not deep value approach like Kundal or, or uh, anything like that. Uh, but it's definitely has a value kind of uh, preference. We'll call it that. You can also find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, CDI newsletter or just type in Canadian dividend investing. That's my name. You'll find me. And that's really about, uh, that's about it. I'm sort of semi-retired, so I don't do a whole lot uh, except for that. Awesome. Well, for, for the audience, you know, I think Nelson is a great follow. Additionally, Highly recommend this book. It's about a very fascinating individual with a lot of good lessons for for life and investing. The book is Routines and Orgies by Christopher Rousseau Gill. Highly recommended. Thanks for coming on today, Nelson. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. All right. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. 
Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.